Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. John Lee, a professor of ancient history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In this episode, we discuss why the Persian Wars weren't his entry point into Achaemenid studies, how having a PhD student from Iran both enhances and challenges him as an educator, the personal and family relationships between Greece and Persia, and his freedom to design courses at a smaller institution. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I've been really excited about this conversation and I want to ease you right into it by asking you, how did you get your start in ancient studies? What first drew you to the ancient world? Oh, thanks for Lexi. First of all, let me say good morning from UC Santa Barbara. It's really delightful to be here and thank you so much for, for having me. I'm really, really glad to have this chance to, to talk with you. So how did I get my start in ancient studies? I grew up in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, in high school, you take Chinese history, Japanese history, Indian history, British literature for some reason, and Hawaiian history, but you do not take ancient history, Greece or Rome. And so I knew nothing about the ancient world, whether it was the world of the Mediterranean or the world of ancient Persia. And then I got to college at the University of Washington, and I wanted to be a, a diplomat like my dad had been, so I thought I'll study history. But to be a history major, you have to take one of those required surveys on the ancient world. And that was the first I'd ever heard about Athens or Sparta or Rome or Persia peripherally at that time. That was in the late 1980s. And I was hooked because it was new and different and exotic. And I went on from, from there. But it was really a general education course at the University of Washington that got me started. Oh, that's awesome. So when you did find this interest, did you immediately notice that you gravitated toward like a certain area subject or were you kind of just overwhelmed by, oh, there's so much here. I have no idea what I want to do. You know, because it was new, I was overwhelmed at first and I took every course that I could in the history and classics departments at University of Washington, which was both Roman history and, and Greek history. And then I, I began to find that Greek history interested me more, I think, because there was a lot of history of warfare uh, and warfare was a topic that interested me, as it does for many young undergraduates. Uh, so I found myself being drawn more in the Greek history direction. And then one of my professors said, why don't you take languages? So that was my beginning of Latin first and then Greek. And by the time I got to being in my senior year, the professor who had become my mentor really suggested, why don't you think about graduate school, John? And I, I had no idea what that was. So I applied and, and applied to the places that she suggested and, and went, on, went on from there. But really at first it was both. And as time went by, I narrowed down to, to Greek history and really to the classical Greek world at, at first. Nice. And so now once you got to grad school again, how did you choose what you wanted to focus on? Like by then, had you kind of 
figured out, okay, yeah, I want to do like this or that, or was it still a process? It was still a process. I mean, I, I came to graduate school interested in, in classical Greece, uh, also in archaeology as well as as history. And I ended up after, you know, the usual round of coursework, including a lot of Roman history still. I, I you know, I, I read a lot of Tacitus. I spent, spent had some re- very, very good Roman history seminars. But eventually my dissertation led me to Xenophon and Xenophon's Anabasis which was a great source for the questions that interested me, which was warfare, but not only the weapons and tactics, but the everyday life of soldiers. So that became my dissertation, which became my first book, Soldiers and Survival in Xenophon's Anabasis. But that, you know, that, I would say my graduate training was really very still Greece and Rome focused. I I keep mentioning the Latin and I, I, I land upon that because these days, I, I do very, very little Roman history except when teaching or maybe serving on a committee for one of my one of my colleagues. But my training was 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 different from you know, what I focus on on now. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's it's I'm glad that you're kind of stressing, right, that what you your background is mirrors what a lot of people who eventually end up doing Iranian studies or something to do with Persia, even if it's not in Iranian studies, what they, you know, how they had to start, you have to start in classics, which is kind of unfortunate, but there isn't really a, a way, a better way to do that as of now. And so, you know, did you get to take classes on Persia at all? Like, or is this something you had to very much sort of find on your own because there just wasn't anything? Yeah, terrific question. And uh, absolutely not. I never took in graduate school any course which specifically focused on Achaemenid history or even on you know ancient Iran more broadly. And even the courses I was a teaching assistant for, well, you might mention the Arsa kids or the Sasanians, but there there wasn't any 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 real component to that. And I think that reflects the times that I was in graduate school. You know, in the in the early to middle nineteen nineties. You know, that's a quarter century or more ago. We can say, and so I think I followed a train that some of the the you know some of the leading specialists in the Caymanid history, Christopher Tuplin, Pierre Briant, I think even others came from that from an angle where their their original training or interest came from the classical side. And then as my interest expanded, I became more and more aware of the need to know more about, about the Achaemenid Empire. I mean, I mentioned, you know, I wrote a dissertation about Xenophon as that became a book. I really had to learn more about the empire. And as I finished the book, I began to think, well, what about the rest of the empire beyond, you know, the few years that I focus on in this book? And so my interest came, I think, in line with others. You know, you might have folks on this podcast who have the same kind of development where they don't begin in Iranian studies as such, but their other interests lead them into into the field. And that was my path. And I, I think it tells us something about the nature of, of Achaemenid history or Achaemenid studies is that it, it's very broad and it draws people, not just in my fashion from, you know, the classical side, but also from biblical studies, from Assyriology, Near Eastern studies, uh, from Central Asia and elsewhere. It's really kind of a nexus that where people come from elsewhere and, and they find a new scholarly world. 
Yeah, and it's kind of exciting, right? Just because you, like, I, I, I don't love how you have to sort of approach it from a different field, but I do like the end result where because then you get all these different perspectives from other, you know, regions and sort of, okay, so let's synthesize what happens when, you know, it's, it makes our really interesting contributions. And that is something that I do appreciate in this situation where we can't just say, yes, go study that. Here you go. So, you know, in terms of like getting into ecumenid studies, I don't know why, but I kind of assume that people get into it because of the Persian Wars and stuff. Now, was that your entry point? Was that your, you know, what, what drew you? Or were you actually one of the people who concentrated on something else and, and, and sort of see that as like, yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yes, we study it. But also, hey, there's more. I would say I, the Persian Wars, yes, interested me. But it really was really, the, the you know, the story that Xenophon recounts uh, of the competition between two members of the Achaemenid royal family it was much more what drew me in. So a century later, and I think I broadened out from there because I became interested in the wider social economic and cultural aspects of the empire. And then I was able to expand that by focusing for years on the western coast of Anatolia, what is modern day Turkey, where I spent a lot of years traveling up and down the coast there. So it wasn't the Greek and Persian wars of the early fifth century. That was that was my thing. It was it was Cyrus and Artaxerxes, and it was the region of Ionia and its neighbors, this sort of borderlands area between Greece and Persia that really that really got me interested. And maybe to throw in something else to our conversation, the question of of travel, right? Where we can where you can travel. I in my training as a as a historian of Greece, I traveled all throughout Greece as a you know as a professor. I've led travel study trips in Greece and in Turkey. And so that that kind of ability to go and see the material, see the place is really important. And I obviously being an American in the 90s and the 2000s, going to Iran is not an option the same kind of way. I, I know people do that, but I have not been able to. So it's a, a different kind of enterprise in a way to move from a world where you can say, I have been to Sardis, right? I've climbed the Acropolis of Sardis to not being able to say that I've not been to Persepolis. I've not been to Susa or Pasargadai or, you know, or to say nothing of smaller sites to say nothing of Babylon or elsewhere. And that's another aspect of it. You have to expand your focus, not just in terms of the field, but in terms of how you approach how you approach this empire, because you can't see all of it the way that you can claim you have seen much of the, of the Greek world. Well, that seems like then it lends well to, I mean, it leaves an opening, right, for maybe people who have access to these sites to do us a solid, come help us out. We can't go, you can go, so let's work together, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And of course, there are, there are scholars who have traveled, you know, uh, even Americans in, in Iran in the, in the past and, and international scholars as well. Um, I'm very fortunate now to have a new PhD student who is actually from Iran. She finished her MA at the University of Tehran and she has traveled everywhere. In fact, uh, she's has has been to every province of Iran. She's been through Iraq, and she brings a really valuable perspective that I'm able to draw on in our in our conversations. When we're talking about cuneiform sources, or we're talking about the Greek sources. She can say, "Well, I've, I've been there," uh, and that's a really powerful a really powerful addition to have as part of the, the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it, 
it sounds fascinating. And, and I am curious, since you are lucky enough to have a student come directly from Iran. I mean, so like, what is the experience like advising her? And, and is it like, how different is it from other, you know, American students or Europeans who come and want to study the same thing? Well, first of all, I should I should say I have not had very many students over the years because uh, although we have a pretty vibrant ancient history program, the most of the folks are focusing either on Roman history, late antiquity, or on imperial China. So I tend to be a, a committee member rather than a chair. I did have a Canadian student who wrote a great dissertation on bows and spears in the Achaemenid Empire, uh, and he happened to be a uh, also, a, he is also an outdoors person. So he actually was building and testing a replica Garon shield, one of the shields that shows up in our sources. That was part of his dissertation. So I haven't had many students. I, I mentioned that student because I guess I've had several international students. But having a student from Iran, first of all, is a challenge in the application process. You know, we started corresponding last, I guess it was September of 2022, and around the time that, you know, the protest movements were beginning in Iran. And so for a while, we couldn't even converse by by Zoom. So that was a that was a challenge. And then finding funding for a, a graduate student is difficult. Um, you're in the University of California system, uh, you know that we're a public university and, and resources can be tough. And UCSB is the, you know, the smaller sibling, I guess, <laughs> UCLA. So resources are even tougher. So I was very very, very pleased when my student was was not only admitted but received a, a you know a full funding package so that which enabled her to be here. And so working with a student who has come from Iran uh, and brings a, a you know a deep preparation there and a deep geographical and topographical knowledge is it's just really exciting because it adds so much that I don't have. I mean, I you know when we're having a seminar discussions, you know oftentimes, I'm in the position of being as much a learner as a, you know, as a professor. But on the other hand, it's it's very interesting that her preparation in Iran didn't include much Greek history. So, you know, back to where we began our, our conversation here, you know, that's something that that I can bring because of the direction that I that I came from. So it's I think it's a really it's a really positive mixture to have with, with a student. It's just so exciting to have to have a student. I, I like, you know, I, I love talking with students about ancient history, whatever they're they're studying, whether it's late antiquity or, or you know, early imperial China. And I, I love that. But, you know, it's really, really special to ha- be able to talk very deeply about research material in the field that you love the most. And, the, you know, there's something very rewarding about about that aspect of, of graduate graduate teaching. That's so wonderful. And now, you know, I'm not going to sit here and assume, right, that every student's background and everyone's experience is the same. Obviously, they're not. But just from this unique example that you've provided, I'm curious, like, so for the language background, obviously, depending on what education system you've come from and, and what people place emphasis on, what kind of language background did your student come in with? And does it sort of mirror what here sort of in the quote unquote Western world, you know, we expect of someone who wants to go in and study these fields? Yes. Uh, her preparation does mirror what my preparation was in the sense that she's now in first year Greek and it did not have. So that's 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 very interesting, right? Because we still need the Greek literary sources. We need to look at them. But on the other hand, she has fluent Arabic and she has worked directly with old Persian material. She has a middle Persian as well and, and other and has worked with with that epigraphical 
material as well. So in a way, it's sort of sort of a mirror. She came with very different preparation than what I had for graduate school. And and the Arabic sources, for example, open up a whole set of materials that I'm really unfamiliar with. You know, the Islamic period historians writing in Arabic who contains some historical information, however difficult to interpret or muddled it might be about the Achaemenid Empire. And that's a whole other whole other set of sources that that knowing Arabic brings you access to. And we were talking, I was, we were, she was saying, maybe I should learn Aramaic, which would be, you know, would be a, that, that's, that would be a, a nice research language addition. But I, maybe the bigger, the bigger point here is that our old conception of ancient history, the conception I you know, was brought up in of Greek and Latin, Greek and Latin as the, the, the two, that breaks down when you get to the Achaemenid world, because you need a broader, a different set of skills. And you also cannot learn every single language. I mean, there are a few people who can learn every single one. And so you become uh, more reliant on cooperation with other scholars and you have to trust their linguistic skills in publishing documents so that you can use them as a historian. And that's different from the kind of classics-based idea of I am the sole individual who masters all my texts and it is only I who interpret, right? That Maybe that makes... Uh, came in it studies more collaborative in that sense that people have to acknowledge the limits of their abilities and skills i mean it's the rare person who can master every single language needed to to study study the empire that, I know that's a long stretch away from the question you asked but i think it's tight it's in there somewhere i mean what do we ask students to learn these days it's different from from what we, you know came in it studies makes it possible to think about different ways of of learning about the past that our, our older models didn't really think about no, I would agree completely. I mean, it, it is a different way of thinking. You have to approach things differently, especially when you know you're going to go into something quite, you know, a bit more interdisciplinary. And and yeah, you just look at sort of the available things that you can either study or go into. And I mean, I don't think either you or I are going to sit here and say, oh, yes, Roman history, we're missing so much. It's so hard. We can't just silo ourselves and, and only look at you know, one specific area, th that would be so easy. And, and there are definitely many fields where you, you can't do that. We don't have a corpus as large as all of the Roman sources that I could literally pull off a bookshelf and be like, study this. So no, I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's something to definitely to think about. Now, I want to pivot us a little bit. And so you mentioned it before that you were interested in ancient warfare, but obviously it's not just the actual war battle tactic strategy part. You were looking also at, you know, the daily lives of soldiers, which is a different type of, you know, study within warfare. And so I find it interesting. So when looking at that, you know, does this interest extend to... So it seems like, you know, that's taking on a very sort of personal relationshipy type of study, right? It's not just war. So, you know, how far does this extend? And, you know, is that kind of how you like to look at other aspects of Achaemenid Persia, like the sort of more personal relationships? Yeah, I, I think that examining the empire in the from the perspective of personal relationships, uh, family networks, you know, individual life experience over time. I mean, that's the, the life experience is something that I use as kind of a lens in my mercenaries book. So I wasn't interested. I mean, yes, the, yes, it was important to know what weapons they had, but I was also as a historian trying to recover something of what it, of, you know, what the, the social networks of that army were. And so that, that kind of interest in everyday life 
and the interest in human experience insofar as that we can recover it from from the material we have. I think that's followed me into the other research I've done on the Achaemenid Empire. And, you know, for example, recently, as you know, I was at UCLA for this you know, renewed Achaemenid workshops and my contribution there focused on intermarriage between Greeks and Persians and how that sort of intermarriage changes or influences the cultural identity that person in the empire might express. So that, that's another, you know, it's a, it's a different aspect of life experience, right? But being interested in, in that, uh, being interested in life experience, I think kind of prompts my interest in how does mixed marriage affect ethnic or cultural identity? How does it affect the, the ability to exercise power or legitimacy in, in the empire? So yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a common theme that sort of stretches out from warfare to uh, the more recent research that I've done. Okay, so this one's a two-parter because you gave me just so much to think about. And and I, I guess I could do them in either order because I do want to give you space to talk about briefly, recap your, your presentation for those who are not fortunate enough to either join us on Zoom and watch it or in person. But I, I guess the, the first one I want to go with, though, is, you know, do you think the sort of personal social relationship aspect of warfare is understudied? Because I feel like a lot of people who go into warfare are very much into oh, so I want to see the the armor, the materials, I want to see the tactics, I want to see sort of the, the political side of, you know, the, the sort of overarching political conflict. So yeah, do you think it's it's understudied? I would have said that uh, in 2007 before my book came out, but I, I hope that my book, which is next 15 years ago, kind of was at the beginning of a broader interest in that. And while there are still many people who just want to do the helmets, and the armor, uh, and let's. I think we should acknowledge that that's that's important, right? There are, for example, there are recent finds of armor at places such as Gordian and, and Sardis that may shed light on the Achaemenid period soldiers are wearing. So that stuff is is important, but I think now there there is an increasing awareness of the social and cultural logistical aspects of ancient warfare. You're always going to have the people who just want to look at the helmets. You know, and that those studies are valuable in a particular way. But I, I think there's a there's a broader recognition that warfare is, you know, it's deeply tied to the values of the society. We can see this in the royal inscriptions, you know, of the of the Persian kings. Uh, and we can see it in in seal impressions, right? We can see mar the martial values of the of the empire and seal impressions. Uh, so it's not just the weapons and armor, but it's how how warfare helps structure people's idea of you know of everything from the right way to rule an empire to the right way to be you know to the right idea of masculinity right how to be a man in persia is conditioned also by the structures of of warfare so i think i think that in the past 20 years that people have really broadened the the ways in which they look at studying the ancient the ancient world. Hope I've made a I've made a, a small contribution to to that. But there are lots of people who are doing this. You know, lots of people I think who have really tried to broaden beyond just the just the helmets and armor. That's good to hear. I I don't know. I mean, just as a sort of it, quick impression, right? It's just I feel like when I do hear people talking about warfare, it's always the the more sort of stereotypical things that you hear of um and so i was just kind of curious as to you know why why that still is but it's good to hear that there are other people doing other wonderful things not beyond that 
so yes, I want to circle back to your paper, your your presentation for the acumenoid workshops that we had here last spring. So for anyone who was not able to join us and who you know, the publication isn't out yet, so they can't read about it quite yet. I don't want to have you like represent, but could you recap kind of, you know, so what what did you present on and what is, I suppose, like the main takeaway that you would want people to have? So my my presentation, which will be revised as a paper in the Portavuds series, focused on Persian elites in the north northwestern corner of the empire, the region that encompassed the satrapal center at das- Daskaleon and also encompassed the city of Troy or Ilion and the region of the, the Troad. And the particular family that I looked at, the family of the Persian noble Artabazos, who intermarried with a, a Rhodian woman, is one that had received a lot of a lot of attention. And in fact, John Highlands, who you had on your podcast recently, um, had written a really excellent article talking about, about Artabazos family. In my presentation, I tried to push further the idea of changing mixed cultural identities over time and to show that if in the beginning, the idea of imperial Persianness was something that the, the uh, that Darius and his successors put out as, as you know, the, the unifying principle of the empire, what it meant to be Persian changed over time to the point that you could have a Persian noble marrying a apparently Greek woman and having children with both Greek and Persian names in a region that was that was deeply entangled, where you had both Greeks and Persians, for example, going to Troy to to do ritual ac- activities there. And I tried in the in the paper to make comparisons with the evidence we have for mixed relationships in other parts of the empire. We have evidence from papyri in Egypt, and we have evidence from cuneiform tablets in Babylonia. But as anybody who's dealt with that material knows, it's very tricky, right? If someone has a mixed Iranian father's name and a Babylonian personal name, is that evidence of an intermarriage or is it personal choice? I mean, there are many, many, there are many, many tricky questions there. So that's a quick outline of what I presented, which was focusing on this borderlands region where you have Greeks and Persians in very close contact with each other to the point of intermarriage at the very highest levels of the of the society. Well, I mean, I remember it being very fascinating. So, you know, I can't wait to see what the uh, finished publication looks like. But yeah, I it's it's interesting also because I think like popular culture has contributed right to this idea that Greece and Persia were kind of like innately hostile to each other and and then you have other media things like the 300 films and and other things just showing us like how like trying to tell us that they're really incompatible right so do you find that people who really want to come talk to you about this do they not know like do they fall into this trap essentially right of thinking that Greece and Persia really wouldn't want to have much to do with each other because of the wars and the history and so do you find that people are surprised about this idea of like wait actually there were like intermarriages and all this stuff and they didn't just hate each other's guts and want nothing to do with each other. Yeah, that's a great a great question. And I, I think the answer is yes. And if you're talking about people, you mean, for example, my students at UCSB, many of them arrive in a class if I'm teaching in a Caymanid history upper division class with 45 or 50 students, they probably have gotten the 300 Spartans viewpoint unless they're from a Persian or Iranian American family, in which case they've gotten a different viewpoint. And that's one of the really interesting things about teaching a Caymanid history in California, 
And I think it would be different. It would be different elsewhere. But you get you get both the very stereotypical presentation, and then you know from other students you get the other side, which is you know Cyrus founded modern concepts of human rights, and other you know a, another set of stereotypes. And I think that students are especially the ones who come with the idea that the, the relationship between Persia and Greece is about warfare and two incompatible cultures are surprised to see the extent of entanglement and interlinking. And I think it, you know, it puts Greek history in a very different light. If you no longer think of the, the Aegean world as the center of classical civilization, but you realize that it is a marginal regions, you know, which is struggling to maintain a distinct identity on the edges of this very large and very powerful. And let's face it, an empire is an empire. I mean, the Achaemenids are they're not in the business of empire for charity, right? The the Greeks are, are trying to maintain a distinct identity, political independence. It really puts a different spin on all of Greek history to see, you know, sort of de we like to use the word decenter, right? To take us away from that, you know, the view that that Athens is part of the center of the of the world. And, you know, getting back to your question, when students see that, they really understand that that's a much more interesting story. And as historians, it then becomes a much more interesting story for them, because the simple stories of, you know, inside and outsider of civilized and barbarian, you know, these things are really complicated, right? From the Achaemenid perspective, it's those, the Yauna folks who are the barbarians. They're the outsiders, you know, which turns around the stereotypes they might get from, from popular culture. So I think students are surprised and I think they're pleased and, and interested to learn more about, uh, you know, to learn that there's more than just those stereotypes. So another you know aspect that's really, I think, important, not just for students, but anybody who's interested in the Cayman Empire, is that this is a historical study that requires really thinking about different kinds of sources. If you do mainstream Greek history, you're, you're going to rely on your narrative authors, Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, then you're going to turn to inscriptions and, and archaeology, of course. But if you're going to look at Greek and Persian interactions, you have to look multiple sets of different texts. So Persian royal inscriptions, as well as Greek inscriptions. You have to consider what the archaeology at the center of the empire might tell you, as well as what the Greek archaeology might tell you. And you have to be able to weigh and balance these different kinds of sources against each other. I mean, the classic thing is going back to your Persian wars. You know, there's been a debate about Xerxes and Babylon, you know, destroy, evil destroyer of temples, or or is that just a, a Greek myth? And that requires considering and balancing very fundamentally different types of evidence, you know, cuneiform tablets versus a connected narrative account. And that's good for people, because I think it really presses them to have to think with different types of material and to consider different types of historical analysis. And that's actually one thing that's really exciting about teaching a Cayman history classes. You get to introduce people to a, a viewpoint they didn't know and to sources that they just didn't had no idea that existed. I think that's awesome. And especially the time period, I suppose, that you specialize in, but also just out of personal curiosity, I remember being very shocked, right, as a, as a young student in a classics department where we didn't have anyone who really did Persia. And so all of my Persia, you know, information came either later or just through personal research. But I remember being very shocked that one of my favorite people from history, ancient Greek history, I should say, to study in school was always Themistocles. I thought, you know, oh, he's got this great narrative arc. You look at his career. You looked at, you know, being the, the big savior of Athens and all, all, all these cool things. 
And then when I learned that he was eventually ostracized and then he, yeah, went, you know, to other places in Greece, but then eventually entered like the service of the Persian king and then died as some like illustrious magistrate. I was like, wait, what? He defeated them. Like they didn't, they were kind of enemies, right? So for me, that was like mind blowingly shocking. So do you find that like when teaching this course there are students who have that same reaction like is there a certain figure from history who also kind of has like a Themistocles like arc that always shocks people that's a great question maybe when I tell them about Themistocles yes Themistocles himself <laughs> shocks them so you know often students come in with just the, the, the stereotype and a broad knowledge so they're they're not focused on a single individual but certainly the process by which people move in in and out of the empire in the case of Themistocles is one you know one famous uh, examples that certainly does interesting because they have the stereotype they may have received is of this sharp division you're talking about right Greeks or Persians civilized or barbarian you know depending on which side of the divide you're standing on and then the degree of cultural in intermixing that you find throughout the empire does it does really interest them so it's it's maybe more the processes they see rather than any particular individual that they focus on is what surprises them when they start to learn more about the empire and they are also i think you know we talk a lot about how long we have known particular sources you know the decipherment of cuneiform in the mid 19th century is really not that far away and that surprises them that really does i think that they're like really oh and so then they begin to question well you know we've known the greek sources you know basically in a wider sense since the manuscripts were available you know i mean they were available many of them were available in byzantium but as they became more widely available in the renaissance and early modern period so they begin to think about they, they begin to get surprised by the way in which knowledge of the past has developed and so that's, you know, that that process, I think, gets them maybe more than any one particular individual. I mean, I guess because I say so much about Xenophon, they're surprised to know that Xenophon, who, you know, in the, I don't want to be stereotypical, because there's a lot of more focus on Xenophon today than there was. But in the stereotypical classics curriculum, right, you don't get to hear about Xenophon. You, yeah, yeah you, you know, he's, he's left out. He's the, you know, he's the inferior, he's too easy. He's the beginning Greek writer. But once students realize that here is a source, a writer not only wrote you know, 15 different works on a huge range of different things, but had the kind of awareness of other cultures that is you know, missing sometimes in, in, in uh, stereotypical ideas of what the Greeks were like, they're surprised by it. They're surprised by, by that. Yeah, I, I would say maybe Herodotus could get some of that surprise from as well. But for, in my classes, because I tend to emphasize Xenophon, no surprise, they, they are sometimes surprised by the way Xenophon overturns their stereotypes of what, you know, ancient Greece was. Hmm, interesting. Well, I mean, obviously, each university is different, the structure, the way things have to go. But, it, you know, one, it sounds really cool that you're you're able to teach, you know, this, this course on accumulated history. And so I'm a little curious just about like the classes that you're able to teach. Like I know obviously for smaller universities and stuff, it's always kind of a need-based thing, but like how much freedom do you have to sort of design your own sort of Achaemenid Persian history courses? Like, do you get to teach just one or can you like go deeper on certain themes or people or, or something that would give students a, a deeper look and not just sort of a cursory overview? 
Yes, I have, you know, University of California faculty at UCSB as at UCLA have a great deal of latitude to design courses that they the way they want them. And, you know, this circles back to where I came from as a historian who was primarily tra trained in Greece and Rome. The classes I taught in the year 2000 when I arrived here at UCSB are, are quite different from the classes that I teach today. I mean, I inherited a sort of two-quarter Greek history ends the Peloponnesian War series, and then I expanded that to cover the Hellenistic world. And then, as my interest grew in the way we've been talking about in this in this conversation, I I designed a course on the Eastern Greek world and the Ionian borderlands. So I I taught that, and then I began to teach the Caymanid classes, one of my staple courses. And this coming not winter but in spring, I'm doing a different take on the Hellenistic world class, which is to talk about the last generation of the Caymanid Empire. So to think about you know in the Hellenistic class, you go con con conquest of Alexander, poof, we're down somewhere else. But I really want to stay in the period, let's say, in the you know three eighties down until until three hundred or so, like this this century of transformation, and to focus on what happens when a, an empire ends, right? And how what what changes, what persists? How do people make sense of that of that transformation? So that's a different kind of class than anything I've taught before, and I have the freedom to do that. And then at the graduate level. Because we don't have a huge ancient history program, and here again, you know, anybody's familiar with the UC system will know that that we are small and we don't even have, you know, many of the colleagues that you all are, are really fortunate to have who work in Near Eastern studies and cuneiform Akkadian, Egyptology, um, Iranian languages, and I mean, I can, go, I can go on and on, like we don't have that, right? And so we miss out on a lot of that. And maybe this is a good place for me to plug how valuable Port of Ud has been for me and my students, because you know, back in the day before Zoom, we would I would drive down, but Zoom, especially in the pandemic, and especially now that you know it's lovely to go to UCLA for in person. I love doing that, but for students, they can't always do it. I mean, Port of Ud makes it's a big resource for for being able to teach some of the things that I teach. I assign lectures from you know from the, that lecture archive for students to to view and to write reactions about when the conference was being zoomed i assigned that they had to choose several sessions to go to and you know that all ties into your question about what can i teach as i can you know have the freedom to do that and fortunately have the, re the resources like that Portaboot offers, even though we don't have those those here. And, you know, it's my dream that we have a colleague who does the first millennium BC in Babylonian cuneiform culture. Anybody's listening out there and doing doing hiring plans. <laughs> but, you know, but until that day comes that, you know, I have a, a, those sorts of colleagues here. Of course, I do have a great Egyptology colleague in addition to the, the Chinese uh, and Roman colleagues I've mentioned. Um, having that ability to to draw on the resources that you all offer. I mean, that's 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 important for, you know, uh, for a campus like like UCSB. So, yeah, I've got a long way from your question about teaching. Maybe this shows how excited I am. Maybe the last thing I just say I'd say about teaching is that, you know, the students they get so excited when they begin to learn a vision of the ancient world that they hadn't known about before. And even though the ancient Persia is part of the California middle school standards. The sense I get is that many students really have not had any exposure to it when they get until before they get to college. And so it's a real pleasure to be able to add that to their understanding of, the, of world history. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I loved the previous answer. I really did so much because, you know, that kind of was going to be a follow up anyway. So you've half answered it. Now you can just add to it if you would like. But, (laughs) you know, this is something that, you know, I think is recognized, but we don't always talk about, which is, you know, for yeah, for the smaller schools that aren't as lucky to be a UCLA, you know, I, I went to the University of Missouri for undergrad. We didn't have any resources. And like the year after I graduated, my department essentially got shoved in with two others and rolled into, you know, one. So it, it's, it's an issue that I think we, we sort of, we're doing a better job of like not tiptoeing around it, but yeah, for, for smaller institutions who just like don't have these resources, I think a big question is like just short of hiring new people and being able to fix something at that institution, you know, like what is something that we can think about getting or doing that would help sort of offset this? So you mentioned the Puerto Rican Institute being able to like provide resources to help you craft the classes you teach and provide resources for assignments. But like, is that enough? Like, should we be doing more? And not just we as Portavood. I'm just like anyone who does either Iranian studies or just, just you know, some people who have more resources. Like, how can we help smaller institutions? That's a great question. And it gets to how the University of California works together as a, as a system. And I think there, there are, I mean, we already do. In addition to UCLA, I mentioned Irvine and Riverside, which, you know, also have um, really important faculty to, who contribute to Iranian studies more, more broadly. And I mean, if we think about it, that's something that kind of distinguishes California in the United States. And so, uh, you know, a, a UC system-wide approach where we recognize that, you know, in the context of each of our own schools, we may be limited or at the margins of interest. But when we look at the system together, we have a great deal of expertise. And it's sort of it's an expertise, which is unusual when you look across the across the United States, and especially in conjunction with the fact that you have many Persian or Iranian Americans in in California. So I I don't know what to I mean, I don't don't want to suggest a program (laughs) right now of what to do. But Certainly, working together across our different universities is one way that, that that we can continue what people are have already been doing. I think that more of that, you know, is, that's promising for the for the future. You know, Zoom, the ability to take courses by Zoom, also for you know, for example, students who need graduate language training. I mean, that's a that would be a potential possibility to think about for the for the future. We used to have a student years ago, she, she drove from here to Berkeley for the day to take a class, then she would drive back. That was presume. And yeah, nobody does that anymore. But you know, although in-person instruction is always to me preferable, I mean, the ability to take a course at another campus and do so remotely, I think that's a that's something that could enhance the collaborative work we do together. So, but these are all just, these are, these are very, very big ideas and it would take, takes more planning and time to, to, uh, to think about how to, how to make those realities. I mean, for the moment, I'm very glad that I, you know, I have good relations and contacts with other people who do ancient history broadly across the UC system. And I think that's one of the great, it's a really nice thing about being in California and having these UC system colleagues is that you have a, a network of people that you can communicate with and share ideas with, participate in events such as at UCLA, or, you know, invite people to come and speak at your institution in person. So they build up those in-person connections. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the question is meant to be open-ended because obviously if we had this answer, 
we wouldn't be talking about it. It would be done or we would be trying to do it. But, you know, it's it's interesting to think because obviously you have research centers like Port of Oud that, you know, provide accurate, good information that can be used in a lot of different scholarly settings. But then you do have, right, a lot of other corners that are like, quote unquote, content producers now as to their accuracy that can be debated. But, you know, I, I think often... One of the things that I find my I routinely find myself thinking about as someone who really likes reception studies, reception of the ancient world, not just ancient Greece and Rome, is, you know, I mention it time and again, but it's very problematic that the 300 films are like one of the only major things we have to teach and talk about ancient Persia. And again, it's very centered on Greece. So it's like, man, it, it, it'd be so nice to have other content producers who would maybe help but not give us something like that yes absolutely (laughs) absolutely it it would you know and from the other end of the empire we have there is a a recent kazakh movie on tomiris which actually john highland who spoke again uh, on your podcast clued me into and tomiris is very interesting because it is a kind of a kazakh mirror of 300 in some ways i think it's a it's a better film but you know again it's one in which persia with persians come off as the, the outsiders it's nothing like 300 and you're right that it's unfortunate that 300 you know another california product right is it retains uh, quite a quite a bit of cultural power even all these years i mean what is that 2006 or 7 and we're talking about you know years after its production it retains a lot of popular cultural power and yeah i, I mean I hope that we'll have more, you know, some more balanced and more pop, more attractive popular culture representation, you know, movie or something that draws on. I mean, think of, I don't know, just to to, to brainstorm wildly, the, the Shaname is an inspiration, you know, potential inspiration for all sorts of, of film. And I know some of that has been done at a smaller level, but not at a, as far as I know, at a Hollywood level. My students often ask me, how come there's no Xenophon movie, right? And I don't know, it'd be very difficult to get the full complexities of, you know, of between Greece and Persia into a movie. But that's, you know, there's, if you're out there, if you're out there, Hollywood producers, uh, think about a Xenophon movie, which is not just a stereotype of, you know, the manly Greeks, but something that that talks about being between and the the links that, that you and I have been, have been talking about today. Yeah. You know, maybe as more students have a exposure in college to the modern historical understanding of the Caymanids and to the variety of sources and the variety of perspectives, you know, someday, somehow that may make its way into a Hollywood production. I mean, there's so much there. I just, I perpetually don't understand why we don't, I, you know, we are talking about so many different figures in history from the Persian side who would make for, for an interesting subject of, like, I always complain bitterly, right? That I'm like, I want like a HBO Rome or Game of Thrones type of thing on the life of Themistocles because I think that would be really cool. But I'm like, you could easily make a game of thrones type of hbo series on cyrus on xerxes Artaxerxes. like you could do so much right so it's it's frustrating that we have so much great material just sitting here and nothing's done with it beyond just academics use it but but for some reason hollywood is still kind of not there but uh, the the reason i just wanted to bring up 300 was because as someone who actually studies war and stuff so 
does it bother you? Like specifically, does that bother you beyond just the sort of problematic everything else? But someone focusing on war, I am, I'm always like, I have to ask the people who do war stuff. Do you, how do you, like what? <laughs> well, yes, because for the frustrations we're talking about that it pr promotes a mythologized and inaccurate view of the past and specifically of warfare, you know, the Spartan army becomes this sort of uh, hard bodied, you know, it's like a calif it's like best I can say living California. It's a very Southern California image, right? Whereas the Spartan army we know through the sources is a very different, you know, a di different sort of thing. Certainly physically, you know, emphasis on physical strength, but it's, it's not about this individual warrior prowess that you see in that movie, right? It's about being part of a group. It's about relationships between men, which are very close and include sexual relations. Whereas in the movies, that's totally, that's, uh, if it's not not if it's not omitted at all, it's it's denigrated. I can't. It's been so long since I've seen seen the movie. So a kind of mythologized modern Sparta, which has little to do with the realities of ancient Sparta. To say nothing about you know the way in which the opposing warriors are presented. Uh, you know the Persian army is they're literally faceless, or they're wearing wearing you know stylized kind of stereotypical Asian masks. It's it's just a just jumble of Orientalist stereotypes. So yeah, at a bunch of different levels, and there are two, right? The two movies, those are really, really, yeah, they just, they're, ah, <laughs> I think it's the best way to say it. I mean, in the second movie, there's a scene where the Spartan Navy comes rowing to the rescue of the Athenian fleet. And, you know, if you're, if a fifth century Athenian audience had seen that, they would have just hooted in derision because everybody in antiquity was very clear that it was the Athenians who were the professionals and the Spartans could, you know, they could barely keep oars from getting entangled at the beginning of the, you know, the Peloponnesian War for, for example. But yes, I mean, we could go on and on, but I think it's, we, maybe the bigger point to get out of this is movies like this and even more recent documentaries show that certain narratives become ingrained in popular culture and it's just hard to get away from them because they're convenient and easy and if you're a producer looking to tell a story well i just go back to the same old story because you can you'll know that your audience is familiar with that mythologized story and so when we talk about you know what about a movie about cambyses i don't want to do cyrus because you know, cyrus has his own mythology around it but you know cyrus's son cambyses what a movie about cambyses would require you know introducing cambyses into a broader popular culture context that that would be i think that would be harder and so i mean we have some sympathy for the pop culture you know producer in a way because they have to work with within the limits of what you can i mean what you can do in a in a popular culture production yeah that's that, that this you're raising a really interesting set of questions and again i just we can only hope that that's what a one thing university educations are supposed to do is to broaden people's minds and that whether they learn about ancient Iran in the, you know, in the one or two lectures I give them in a survey class or the entire quarter that they have when they take my upper division class, that over time that changed what the popular knowledge, the popular narrative narrative is. I mean, that's as a teacher, I hope that <laughs> I, I, I hope that will will occur. Well, I mean, in terms of changing the narratives and helping get more information out there. Now, we have the upcoming Society for Classical Studies slash Archaeological Institute of America annual meeting coming up in January, and I see that you're doing a panel on Persia. So can you give us a little hint as to what you will be presenting on there? 
Yes, uh, I'm blanking on the title of the overall panel, but it's something I think uh, recentering ancient imperialism. And my particular contribution is going to be actually about many of the things we've talked about today, which is about teaching Achaemenid imperialism. And one of the things I do is I draw on 19th century textbooks from the beginnings of, of college and university textbooks in the 1880s, and then compare how portrayals of the empire have changed up into the 21st century. And it's very interesting to see how you know, some early textbooks had a very positive portrayal of the Persians because they were writing from a Christian viewpoint where Cyrus was seen as you know, the protector, of, liberator of the Jews, and therefore as kind of a precursor to Christianity. And then in the 20th century, you get the Orientalist stereotypes of the effeminate, decadent, weak, degenerate empire. And that lasts almost, you know, until the end of the 20th century, when you see textbooks start to present a more balanced picture. So one of the things I, I that, that my presentation will do is talk about how we teach the nature of this empire, and particularly imperialism. And, you know, it gets again to the you know, Greeks versus Persians, if before the stereotype was Greeks good, you know, Persians bad and degenerate, the, the turn on the other side is Greeks are terrible and Persians are this 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 loving empire. Um, there is a there was a World Civ textbook a couple of years ago that actually said it was considered an honor to bring tribute, you know, to Persepolis. Now, maybe for the individuals, but the other side of this is we have to to be clear that the Caymanid Empire was an empire, like the Roman Empire, like any other empire, and that empires work by extracting resources and labor for the benefit of the people on top. And so we have to look at this as historians rather than kind of create this value judgment of one side good, other side bad. And so that's something that I will will try to address in a paper. That's a lot for 20 minutes. But so that just give to give you a, a kind of a preview of what I think I hope my contribution will be. And there are some other very prominent scholars on there. And so I think as a whole, I hope that panel will introduce new perspectives on the Achaemenids to the to a classics conference. And again, we're circling back to the beginning. You know, I'm not sure how much, you know, new perceptions about the Achaemenids or, you know, ancient Iran more broadly have made their way into into classics. Um, it'd be nice to see even more, even more connections. Yeah, well, I plan to be there. So hopefully I will get to see the you know, I, I hope that there's going to be good interaction with the scholars who show up to, to see the presentations. And, and I hope it really gets people thinking because I think it's long overdue. We should be talking about this and decentering the classical world, specifically Greece and Rome. We'll see. We'll see what, what, what the reception is at a classics conference. Right. So that is. Uh, mm, OK. <laughs> Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? Visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser-known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map, or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.arangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. Well, there are two questions that I normally use to end the podcast. And the first one is, what do you believe is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Boy, 
from the ancient Persia, from the Achaemenid world most particularly, how about a vision of a world power that is diverse and multicultural, even though the empire only lasts for two centuries, I think people still look back to it in that respect. You could look at some specific aspects, for example, the widespread distribution of Aramaic. Um, that would be one thing to look at. And its ability to cross cultures that might at first seem totally opposed. So we've been talking throughout this conversation about Greece and Persia, right? So one of the legacies of ancient Persia is it gets us thinking about the connections between peoples, not just Persians and Greeks, but Persians and Egyptians, Persians and Babylonians, Persians and Central Asians, Persians and developing identity of, of the Jewish people. And so the legacy of connections, I think, is a really is is a really uh, big one to for us to consider. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. Well, and then the last question I have for you is, what do you think would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? Well, these are very deep, very deep, very deep questions. The best legacy that we can leave ourselves is to, I think, be the best teachers we can to introduce people in the best possible way to material that they may not have experienced before, and to be the best researchers we can, not only in the sense of our individual selves, but in the sense of working together. I mean, of, of cooperating with one another to advance the study of a field, you know, which has long been recognized, an empire that's long been recognized, but has really emerged, you know, recent recent generations as as a field to so that it eventually will be the case that a, you know a, no university history department would consider having a position that didn't think about the history of ancient Iran. That would be like a standard position to to have. So that sort of teaching and research, I think, is it's something that we can all work on together. And maybe the corollary of that is we can change that popular narrative that you kept you kept asking about. Yeah, no, I would agree. That'd be great. I, I would love it if, you know, history, ancient history, classics departments everywhere had like a dedicated expert for ancient Persia. That would be so cool because then anyone who wanted to take classes on it would have the freedom to. So that would be so lovely. So I did kind of lie. There is one last question I'm going to ask, and that is, ho and hopefully it'll be very simple and easy, but it is, where can people find you if they would like to send you an email, ask a question, find your research publications, um, you know, any other media appearances you've done? Yes. If you want to do simply do an internet search for John Lee, J-O-H-N, and Lee, L-E-E, -E, uh, UCSB History, my UCSB History webpage will pop up with links to my research, some things that are available for download on PDF. If you're interested in hearing my teaching, uh, I have done a 12-hour lecture series for the great courses on Achaemenid Persia. And that is, if you wanted to learn more, that's that's my contribution to teaching for a broader, a broader audience. And you can also find a link from that uh, for that for more information about that on my UCSB history website. So I guess the answer is go to go to the UCSB history website, look for John Lee. Sounds good. Well, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes so people can go and find you and read all of your cool work. And I just want to say, you know, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you this morning. And I hope that you will come back and join us some at some point in the future. Thank you, Lexi. This has really been an enjoyable and very, very wide ranging conversation. I'm really grateful to have the chance to, to talk with you. So thank you. <laughs> 
Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.